worship today through music. And now we're about to spend some time in God's Word. Uh, before we do that, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you that uh, helped to provide food over the last week. And uh, we were able to gather just a whole bunch of food. I think over 600 pounds went over and we packed up uh, 100, uh, enough meals for 100 kids for breakfast and lunch all this next week during spring break. So thank you for your generosity. And uh, God continues to bless us as we reach out to our community and to our community partners at Holt Elementary School. Well, we are continuing today through our journey through the Gospel of Mark. We're calling this Servant and Savior. And today we come to Mark chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, you want to turn there. And uh, we're in the middle of Mark chapter 12. We're calling today Living in Two Worlds. Ever think about that, that you live in two worlds? A few years ago, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Stephen Groats conducted some research about human behavior that shows that we don't usually respond when a fire alarm rings. Instead of leaving the building immediately, it's more common to stand around and wait for more clues. <laughs> but then, even with more information, Sometimes people still won't make a move, and sometimes it provo uh, pr proves to be even deadly. For example, in 1985, 56 people died when a fire broke out in the stands of a soccer match in England. Close examination of the television footage later showed that many fans did not react immediately when the fire alarms went off, and they continued to watch both the fire and the game, failing to move to the exits. Well, research has also shown that when we do move, we tend to follow old habits. For example, we don't trust emergency exits. Almost always, people will exit a room through the same door that they entered, even in a crisis, even when the alarms are sounding. A number of years ago, after a fire in a restaurant in Kentucky left 177 people dead, dead forensic experts confirmed that many of the victims sought to pay their, for their meal before leaving the building, and so they died waiting in line. So Dr. Groats concluded, after 25 years as a psychiatrist and researcher, I can't say that any, any of this surprises me. He, he said, we resist change. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us. Even or perhaps especially in an emergency, we want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit the old one. And then he makes this statement. When we really need to change, we're often frozen in fear or complacency. That's quite a statement, isn't it? We really need to change, but we're stuck. We're frozen. And friends, likewise, it occurs to me that we, when we are in the fires of life and we really need help from God. We really need to make a change regarding salvation or guidance or rescue or forgiveness. So often, we are afraid to seek help. Friends, we need to trust God and cry out for the help that only He can provide. I want you to think of it, 
just a moment here about the fires in our world recently. What's going on? A lengthy worldwide pandemic. A war in the Ukraine. Millions of refugees around the world fleeing political and economic and violent upheaval. We're surrounded by destruction and even death on a regular basis. And as God's representatives in this world, what are we to do? How are we to respond? And so here's our key idea for today. I want to challenge you to live like you're dying. Because guess what? You are. But also, let's live like we're going to live forever. Because guess what? We are either in heaven or separated from God for eternity. So we're going to look at this from Mark chapter 12, a perspective there where Jesus addresses some of these questions. And let's kind of set the context, if we will. And remember, it's the last week of Jesus' life as we're looking at all these stories and encounters that he's having. And he's been involved in a series of confrontations this last week of his life with the religious and the political parties who are trying to take him out, to get rid of him. Last week we saw that the Herodians and the Pharisees attempted to trap Jesus with a seemingly difficult political question about paying his taxes. Well, after those two groups were put in their place by Jesus, another group takes their best shot. The group today is called the Sadducees. Since a, a political ploy didn't seem to work, the Sadducees are now going to try a spiritual stealth attack, if you will. They are the spiritual snobs and the educational elite of Israel. And without a doubt, they thought they could silence Jesus and put an end to his popularity amongst the people. These men were highly educated. They were extremely influential. They were very wealthy and they were known as experts in the interpretation of Scripture. They held powerful positions in Israelite culture, including that of the, the chief priest and the high priest. Today, we might call them rich materialists who lived as if this life were all that there is. They might even be classified as religious liberals or, or even deists. Now, people were impressed with them, just like we are with those who are wealthy and influential today. Our world is infatuated with wealth and influence, isn't it? Because these men had no fear of judgment, they lived as they pleased. Which reminds me, a lot of people live that way today, don't they? And so there's a couple of things to keep in mind about the Sadducees as we kind of think about the background here. The Sadducees, first of all, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were very selective in what scripture they considered authoritative. That occurs to me that that's common today, even in the church world. We're pretty selective. We like some scriptures, and the ones we don't like, we kind of ignore. Well, what else about the Sadducees? They didn't believe. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in judgment or the afterlife or angels. They were selective in what doctrines they believed. And therefore, they tended to live for the moment. Their philosophy might be described as, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do you see any parallels with our current culture that we live in? 
Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, described the Pharisees as being as rude as aliens. I'm not sure exactly what he meant about that, but these were not nice guys, all right? They were arrogant, they were aloof, and they harshly passed judgment on others, especially religious leaders, rabbis, people like Jesus. They considered themselves enlightened. But as we will see, Jesus is about to enlighten them. In verse 18, we see that the Sadducees came to Jesus. So they initiate this contact. They are still upset about Jesus cleansing the temple just a few days before. They're especially upset about that because they were in control of all that commerce, all of that buying and selling going on in temple courtyards. It was under their con control. And so Jesus' actions had had a direct impact on their wallets, and they didn't like that. And since they pride themselves in their great intellectual abilities, they think they've got something that can finally stump Jesus. We got him now, guys. Let's hit him up with this. And so their setup begins as they come to Jesus with their phony, superficial respect, and they call him teacher, rabbi, Jesus the rabbi. And then they jump right in in verse 19, and they say, Moses wrote for us that if a, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, of course, Moses was the great lawgiver, and he was universally accepted and respected by all Jews, no matter their political or religious leanings. And so when anybody spoke about Moses, they were talking about, here's some authority here. And they're referencing a, 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 a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. That's the part of the Bible that they do believe, one of those first five books. And in Deuteronomy 25.5, it says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. This was called leverite marriage. Uh, that's from an old Latin word that means brother-in-law. So brother-in-law marriage. So the Sadducees now describe a very hypothetical and really even a ridiculous situation. They think they have the question that Jesus will not be able to answer, and they think he's going to look just foolish trying to even answer it at all. And this was doubly absurd because they ask a question about the resurrection, which they don't even believe in. By the way, this question they asked was kind of a, their go-to in first century culture. They'd sprung this on, on many other groups, on their opponents, the Pharisees, on others, and they'd had great success kind of maneuvering through this crazy picture that they paint here. And so here's, here's the situation that they proposed to Jesus, verses 20 through 22. So they say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring, and the second took her, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And then they're about to ask a question. You know, we'll get to it in a moment. But it occurs to me, the question somebody ought to be asking is, what was this woman feeding to all her husbands for breakfast every day? She outlived seven of them, and then she died. Well, 
after all of the brothers die, the woman dies too. And then, so then they spring their trap, they think. Here's the question they ask in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, can you kind of hear them asking that sarcastically? Because they don't even believe in the resurrection. When they rise again, Jesus, whose wife will she be? For the seven each had her as a wife. Aha, got you now, Jesus. They painted a, a problem, a, a theological dilemma, which seemed impossible to answer. The question, you know, is akin to maybe somebody saying, can God make a rock so big that even he can't move it? Not kind of a ridiculous question. Who cares? How many angels can balance on the head of a pen? People debate these things, you know, people that are so-called scholars and high-minded people, but it really doesn't matter at all. These are ridiculous questions. They're not grounded in reality. By, by the way, their theological rivals, the Pharisees, who, by the way, do believe in the resurrection, had already weighed in on this question, and they decided that in such a situation, the wife in the resurrection would be married to her first husband. That made sense to the Pharisees. But instead of siding with the Pharisees, Jesus, as he so often does, answers their question with his own question. Don't you love how he does this? I, I imagine their faces kind of falling, their eyes looking around to see who else was watching them as they think, oh, man, he turned that pretty quickly, didn't he? So let's look at Jesus' convicting question in verse 24. So this is Jesus answering about whose who's, uh, wife is she going to be in the resurrection Jesus says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. That's what Jesus says. He asks them a question. He says, by the way, is this why you're wrong, guys? You don't know the word of God. You don't know the power of God. The word wrong here means to wander off course, to go aside from the right way. So Jesus confronts their theological error and their silly question quickly and clearly. First of all, he says, they didn't know the word of God. Even though they acted like they knew the Bible, they didn't accept all of it. And on top of that, they didn't even fully understand the parts that they did accept. And then secondly, they didn't know the wonder or the power of God. While they believed God created the world, they didn't believe he had the power to raise the dead. They essentially limited God by their own conception of rational possibilities. In short, they put God into a box that they could understand rather than saying, God is God, and I'm going to do things his way. By the way, do you realize that every error in this life can be attributed to one of these two statements? Either we don't know the Bible or we don't believe in the power of God to do what he says he can do. Every problem in this world can be related back to that. Well, Jesus then does some teaching by pointing out to them that the resurrection life is far different and better than this life. Take a look at verse 25. Jesus continues on and he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And so in this one statement, Jesus destroys their trap that they'd laid and he takes the wind out of their sails. Did you catch the word when? He doesn't say if 
the dead rise. He says when they rise. Jesus simply states that physical and social relationships in this life will pale in comparison to our relationship with the Lord. And so in this statement, Jesus establishes two tremendous truths that I want to just spend a few moments on for us to grapple with today. The first truth is this. Marriage is an earthly institution. Marriage is designed by God to provide companionship. That goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Marriage is designed to fulfill the need for intimacy. And marriage is designed to produce children. None of this will be necessary in heaven. Therefore, marriage is an earthly institution. And then secondly, life will be very different in heaven. We don't become angels, but we will be, as Jesus says, like them. We'll be like them in the sense that we will be sinless and glorified and eternal. Like angels, we will obey completely and we will worship wholeheartedly. Like angels, we will enjoy an existence that transcends the earthly limitations of this world. We will no longer procreate, but we will never die. We will never die. We will never hunger or thirst. We will not experience pain. And most importantly, we will no longer sin. Life in in heaven will be far different. I like what the commentator Warren Wearsby says about this passage. Resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a new life that is different. I want you to just think about that statement for a moment. So often, when we ask questions about heaven and about the afterlife, we try to frame it by what we know here. Is it going to be like it is here? No, because we are entering into a new life that is so different than anything that we've experienced in this life. Heaven will be a completely different dimension from the life that we now know. Weddings will not be performed because we're going to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will certainly remember our spouse, but every relationship that we have here on this earth will pale in comparison to the relationship that we will have with Jesus. And so I just want to remind us of a few things that we do know about heaven. So we're thinking about that different life to come. What do we know about heaven? First of all, there will be no more sorrow or sickness, suffering, no more sin. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, we learn God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You hear the difference there that is coming for us? Heaven is going to be different. In heaven, we will be given new bodies and new minds. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminds us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So this stuff here, this stuff up here, it's going to be different. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but we know it's going to be different. What else about in heaven? In heaven, we will be reunited with other believers who have died before us. 
I think in heaven we're going to be able to, to tell, you know, tell who one another is. We're going to recognize one another. But we're going to be different. We'll be perfected. We'll be glorified. Remember back in, in Mark chapter 9, a number of weeks ago, when we looked at that on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was there? Remember that, that Moses and Elijah came to visit? And they were there chatting with Jesus. And do you remember that, that the disciples, Peter and James and John, they recognized those guys. They'd never even met him before, and they recognized them. I think that's a little glimpse into what's going to go on in heaven when we get there. And then finally, we will be with Jesus forever. There's nothing more important than that. We will be with him forever. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, while the desire to be reunited with loved ones will be realized, that will take a backseat to being in the presence of God himself. That's what heaven is all about. Well, next, Jesus addresses his critics, the Sadducees, with another question, a second question in verse 26, with a quote from the very section of Scripture that they subscribe to. He's going to have a quote here from Exodus chapter 3. Verses 3 through 6, and it says, And as for the dead being raised, Jesus says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? So Jesus is expecting a yes answer from these guys. Of course they know about Moses and the burning bush. They are no doubt very familiar with that story. And so now that Jesus has them thinking about that passage in Exodus chapter 3, he demolishes their doctrine of no resurrection. Jesus goes on and he says, do you remember how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And four times in that, in that passage in Exodus 3, God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am. Since the patriarchs are still alive, although their bodies are in the ground, there must be such a thing as the resurrection. Notice that the passage does not say, I was the God of these old dead guys that were buried. No. He says, I am the God of these patriarchs. He is the God of the living because he is the living God. Do we understand that? Do we believe that? The patriarchs had been dead for many years, but God spoke about them in the present tense, as if they were alive, because they are. Well, since God made promises to those patriarchs, and those promises were not yet fulfilled during their lifetimes, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he referred to himself as the God of the living, meaning he will still act and fulfill all of his promises. That's the God that we serve. Well, Jesus doesn't leave it there. In, in verse 24, where he began his answer by telling them that they are wrong. Remember that? He, after making the Sadducees kind, of, Sadducees kind of squirm here by asking them these tough questions, he takes it up a notch in verse 27, and he says, you are quite wrong. You're not just wrong, you're quite wrong. What's he saying there? He says, you are in extreme error. You are totally off track, guys. You don't know what you're talking about. 
You couldn't be more wrong. So, here are two closing questions that I want us to consider this morning. They come directly out of this passage. And we must answer them correctly. Or we risk being in extreme error ourselves. The first question is this. Do you know the word of God? Do you know God's word? Jesus still asked this question when he asked it of the Sadducees. Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures. So how well? How well do you know the word of God? You know, those Sadducees, they focused on social status more than on the scriptures. They focused on picking and choosing what they wanted from God's word. They probably had much of the Torah memorized, but it had not penetrated their hearts. Therefore, they did not know God's word. You know, I was just looking at some research from just a few years ago. Lifeway Research study asked regular Protestant church attenders how often they read the Bible outside of church. 19% of regular churchgoers answered every day. Good for them. 18% said rarely or never. Not so good for them, huh? And then 25%, a quarter of these people indicated they read the Bible a few times a week. And then you know what the rest answered? Occasionally. I occasionally read God's word. So that means, if you do the little math here, that a majority of church attenders rarely crack open their Bibles. That is very, very sad. Now, interestingly, in the same research, 90% of these same people said yes to this statement, that they agreed with it. I desire to please and honor Jesus in all that I do. 90% said, I want to honor Jesus in everything. But when asked, do you open this? Not very often. Not much at all. Friends, let me just say, we will never, never be able to please and honor the Son of God if we are not in the Word of God. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Costelli put the problem this way. They said, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. They revere it, but they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they've become a nation of biblical illiterates. That's a true statement. Do you know that fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels? Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three disciples. And according to data from this same research, 60% of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. No wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are, said Mr. Barna. Now, I want you to hear something from me. I'm not up here trying to make anybody ashamed. I'm not up here shaming people. Instead, I want you to know that the church is here to help you. Do you know the Word of God? Are you reading the Bible on a regular basis? If not, I want to challenge you to find a Bible reading guide and start following it. You can find one online very easily. Just type in Bible reading guide. 
There's all kinds of them in there. If you can't find one, if you have trouble, if you're not good on the internet, call the church office. We will print one out and give it to you. A daily Bible reading guide. Make sure, friends, that you are doing whatever you can to become a student of God's Word. I want to challenge you to plug in to a Sunday morning adult Bible fellowship that meets at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. Add another hour onto your Sunday morning, come early, and spend some time studying God's Word. Or join a life group that meets during the week. We've got a number of good groups that meet that spend time studying God's word together. But I want to challenge you to commit today to do something, do something to know God's word more fully. And so that's question number one. Do you know God's word? And then question number two. Do you know the wonder of God? Jesus wants to know, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So here's an important transition, folks. Has the information that you've compiled led to the transformation of your character? You see, it's not enough just to know this stuff. But is this stuff making any difference in your life? Any transformation? Do you know the passages and the power? You see, at some point, we must move from just learning the Bible to living the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes to Timothy a group of people who know God's word, but they don't live it. And here's his summation. He says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And his summation is this, avoid such people. That's what he tells Timothy to teach the church. Avoid the people that have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. That's what the Sadducees were doing. And that's exactly where we do not want to be. Friends, may we more deeply understand and experience the power of God in our lives. As Christ followers, may we remember who we are. It was the seventh inning of Game 7 of the 2016 World Series. The Chicago Cubs were leading 6-3, to three, and they hoped to bring in their dominant relief pitcher to get the final outs that would seal the victory for the Cubs and break their long-time curse. But suddenly, a, a Cleveland double and a, and a, a two-run home run, just not much later, and all of a sudden, the game was tied. Cleveland suddenly had all the momentum and all the Cubs faithful had that all too familiar. Here's where the wheels fall off. The curse is still alive. Despair kept creeping. It was creeping in. And then it seemed like providence shined upon the Cubs. It started raining. It started raining pretty hard. And the field crew ran out to roll out the tarps onto the field and that forced all the players, all the managers, and all the fans alike to wait anxiously for the 10th inning of now the tie game to continue. Well, in the, in the clubhouse, sensing defeated and, and, and deflated spirits, 
Cubs right fielder Jason Hayward calls his team together to passionately exhort them. He said, remember who you are. Remember who you are. He reminded them of their identity as the best regular season team in baseball that year. He reminded them that they were victors in two rounds of playoffs already. And they were a team that had came back from a three-game-to-one deficit in order to force this seventh game. He said, it's our game to win. Remember who you are. And so invigorated by that speech and inspired by that fresh dose of truth, those Cubs rallied for two go-ahead runs in the top of the tent. Now, they could have accepted the inevitable defeat, but instead they charged ahead, fueled by the truth of who they were, and they won their first World Series in 108 years. It's one of the great sports stories of our lifetime, whether you're a Cubs fan or not. But you know what? The power of God is far superior to any winning sports story, and it is a power that each of us can know and possess if we remember who we are. The Bible has so much to say about God's power. In Paul's great prayer in Philippians 3, in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That's what I want to know. I want to know the power. The power of the resurrection comes only to those who personally know Christ through being born again. That word know in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, has far more to do with experience than with intellect. Beyond knowing the facts. The facts are important, but we have to move beyond the facts. We must be growing. We must be showing and living the power of God to others around us. And so, brothers and sisters, if you need help today to know the power of God, we're here to help. That's why we gather every Sunday to refuel, to encourage one another for the days ahead. That's why we encourage you to meet at some time during the week again, to be encouraged, to be built up, to be challenged. Not just to know facts, not just to know stuff out of a dusty old book, but to be changed by the transformational power of Jesus Christ. Do you know the Word of God? Do you know the wonder of God? Let's each begin where we are today, committing to know Him more. So if you need help today, if you need prayer, if you have a question about where to begin, some of our elders are in the prayer corner this morning. And they would love to help you, to pray with you, to launch you off into the next step of your journey of knowing him more. Let's live like we're dying. Because we are. But let's also live like we're going to live forever. Because we will either with Jesus in heaven or separated from him forever. There's no other choice. So let's choose to know him more. Will you pray with me?
Father, we are grateful for your word that is living and active. Father, we are thankful that our faith is not shaped by a, a dusty old book, but Father, that we are shaped and motivated and our growth comes from knowing you intimately. Father, our growth comes from your spirit being implanted in our lives when we're born again. Father, you help us to grow and to change day by day, moment by moment, as we struggle living in the in-between time in this world that is dying and yet looking ahead to that time of eternity when we will be with you forever. And yet, Lord, here you've placed us in this in-between time. And Father, you want us to be your representatives. Father, you want your power to be made known through us, through our fellowship, through our words, through our conversations, through our actions and our attitudes. Father, you want for others to see the truth of the word and the power of the spirit because we know you. And so, Father, we pray that we might continue to pursue that growth starting today in an even more fervent and determined way. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. May God bless you this day as you determine to know him more. Let's stand together as we sing this final song.